Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Beck Bessaker, CEO and founder of MarkSend, a 3D product experience platform that's raised over $44 million in funding. Beck, thanks for chatting with me today. Oh, thank you for your time, Brett. Super excited for our conversation. Now, to kick things off, could we maybe just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. My background is very tightly intertwined with my brother, Barry, who's our kind of my lifelong CTO. And uh, this is our third or fourth company together, losing track. You know, we're lifelong entrepreneurs. We've always, we sort of grew up in the, you know, kind of started in business in the late 90s, early 2000s when the first sort of round of um, internet enabled businesses. And so we've always been, at that time it was like ASP, but we've always been in around sort of the the hosted cloud-based content management space and sort of have moved from different industries that were in need of sort of moving from traditional sort of desktop experiences into a sort of a, a modern cloud-based customer experience. Now, looking at your LinkedIn, I see that that first company, it looks like that was Copian in 1999, and then you ended up selling that in 2006. So that must have been a pretty interesting time to be in tech. When did the bubble burst? Was that 2000, 2001? 2001. Yeah, we started that. So that was original. I went to Purdue for a long time. I think I was in school 10 years or something like that. But we, uh, I got a job in like the fundraising office there, helping them with sort of like a big data project to, the goal was to figure out if it was going to go raise a billion dollars in a, like a funding campaign, you know, who should they target amongst their alumni population, if you will. Which is pretty cool because uh, Neil Armstrong is actually like the chair of the campaign. It's like a big billion dollar campaign to grow the university. So I was a graduate student in finance and that got me into like, you know, a big data and segmentation and targeting and lookalike models to try to like, you know, understand prospects. And so what that got me into was this idea of like differentiated marketing and email was, you know, was only a few years old at the time. So the thesis of our first business was, geez, if you can send out a marketing message at no variable cost, like you could be a lot more efficient with your advertising dollars, which is kind of funny to say now, right? Because that's what we all do. But And so our thesis for the first business was, hey, all these emerging online companies, Amazon, pets.com at the time, are all going to need a target marketing platform that where you could differentiate messaging and do like sequences and all the stuff people call it today. So the good news is we were sort of right about where this space would go, but the bad news was you just hit it on the head. All my clients were, you know, dot coms that couldn't pay anything at the end of the day. But we got kind of lucky in that what we were doing was also useful in the physical retail world. So, you know, when you like scan a loyalty card and you get offers on your receipt tape based on your like current and previous purchase history we're the guys that invented that. And so what we did is we took that differentiated marketing platform in the cloud and then connected it to the checkout in the store. So we would look at your purchase history. And then instead of having like a hard coded buy one, get one free, we could send that up to the cloud and decide, you know, Brett, you know, would like an offer on baby formula because we saw him previously buy diapers. And that's where we got bought by NCR eventually became part of 
the backbone of NCR's loyalty marketing platform that's used in, you know, thousands and thousands of retailers around the world. But uh, yeah, it was a great, great, great experience. We probably raised a million eight for that company. You know, we were 30 people or so when it sold. The moral of that story is things got tight on fundraising in 2001, you know, right after 9-11. And so, you know, we really were in a position where it was going to be hard to grow the business without additional financing and things were pretty tight during that time. So, but ended up good. We sold to NCR and I stayed there for three years, worked for Mark Hurd, you know, couldn't have been better. It's a great first, you know, B2B SaaS experience, if you will. Were you tempted to move to Silicon Valley at any point? Because it looks like that company was in Indiana. So not to offend any of your listeners in California, but y'all got enough entrepreneurs. You don't need me. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, part of our company ethos, both companies, actually all three companies, we kind of don't hire anybody from California because you guys got plenty of opportunity out there. We're part of our mission is, you know, really to help build these kind of businesses and in, in the Midwest and, you know, Florida and, and other places. Amazing. Love that. Who inspires you when it comes to founders? Are there any founders that you've personally interacted with or worked with or partnered with in some way that just really inspired the way that you approach work? Yeah. Our dad was an entrepreneur. He had a sporting goods store. That's where we caught the bug. It was funny. Barry and I were talking about, we used to do inventory when we were like seven and eight years old and he'd have this counting like golf tees. It wasn't until I was like in my thirties, I realized that was unnecessary. <laughs> You're just keeping us busy. But my dad was really cool. He was always introducing us to business ideas. I got my first copyright when I was seven, which I was like so excited, but I had no idea what a copyright was. It's like a drawing he did for me and helped me with. And so first and foremost, dad, and then I'm a big biography guy. I love biographies, particularly around, you know, I've read all the Rockefeller and Carnegie and JP Morgan, all this. It's just so interesting to me. And I'd say practically that, I mean, the people that have been really meaningful in my life, Dan Gilbert, who started Rocket Mortgage, who's a, one of the largest investors in our company today, uh, Mark Sent. And um, I mean, that guy's a horse of nature. He's the just an amazing entrepreneur, great culture builder. We've patterned our entire culture, which I hope we get a chance to talk about today, off of Rocket Mortgage. And then I got another guy. It's a major investor in company, Arnie Bellini, who started ConnectWise, sold to Tomo Bravo for a billion plus a couple of years ago. I got a long list, actually. I've been inordinately blessed with founders who've been successful and and been able to sort of put them in our circle of influence. You mentioned biographies there. I'm a, I'm a big biography reader. About three or four years ago, I just got burnt out and exhausted of reading business books. Seems like they all kind of said the same thing. So I've been yeah. very deep into biographies. I don't care for like like the five steps to happiness type stuff. And, you know, the formula, like that stuff just doesn't stick with me, but, you know, biographies and stories, like the lessons embedded in those kind of stay with you. And I hate the pop culture, you know, simple frameworks, Tony Robbins of bar, you know, business books, not for me. Have you heard of the podcast, uh, The Founders? I have, yeah, I have. I've listened a few times. Yeah, I figured if you're into biographies, that's like a dream. I stumbled across that a few uh, few weeks ago. I was like, wow, this is going to take up a lot of uh, a lot of content or a lot of time to get drilled this. If you could meet any person from any of the biographies that you've read, obviously it doesn't matter if they're alive anymore, like who would that person be? Let's see. I'm a Neil Armstrong fanatic. Like he grew up in Ohio and uh, not too far away from like where my Barry and I grew up. You know, the Wright brothers are like a big deal you know, in Dayton. And we always considered ourselves, we were pretty thick as these, very nice. So kind of thought of ourselves as the Wright brothers of whatever, you know, 
inventors. And so, but Neil Armstrong was the, you know, I grew up, I was born in 70, you know, you still had a lot of the space race stuff going on in the seventies. I don't know if you, you're probably old enough to know the member of the show, Bionic Man, Steve Austin. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was kind of after Neil Armstrong. Yeah. So Neil Armstrong would be the guy I'd love to. So he's a Purdue grad and a lot of people don't know that there's like 23 astronauts that went into space that went to Purdue. Very well-known program there. And so anyway, I of course knew of him. I'd read his books, I, you know, learned about him in school. And so I'm working on this fundraising campaign and I didn't know he was going to be the chair of this campaign. And I'm sitting inside the office of this like vice president of advancement. And there's this older guy sitting next to me and he starts asking me all these questions. He's probably in his seventies and he's like, you know, what are you studying? And you know, how do you like school? Just like overly interested in like what I was doing or who I was. And, and, you know, I was kind of bothered because I was thinking about my interview and, and then the, uh, the receptionist said, you know, Dr. Armstrong, you can go in now. I was like, you gotta be shitting me. <laughs> I, couldn't believe, I couldn't believe it. I literally, I think about that. I use that story a lot about listening and asking questions. Cause I mean, maybe the dumbest moment of my life, <laughs> but, but it was pretty cool. That's awesome. And yeah, that's what this podcast is all about is they're hearing these types of stories. They're always fun. So appreciate you sharing that one. Now I'd love to switch gears here and let's dive a bit deeper into the company and, and how we like to begin this part of the interview is really talking about the problem. So at a high level, what problem is Mark Sant solving? Okay. So if you're going to buy a high consideration product, like in the home category, which is where we're focused. So I think kitchen, bath, a decking project, right? They're expensive. They have a lot of configurable parts that have to be put together in a, you know, a shared scene. It's a complex data model. And, and if you're just an average Joe and you own your first home and you're going to build your first kitchen and it's going to cost you 10, 15, 20,000 there are just not any really good tools or were not, weren't any really good tools out there that allowed the average homeowner or a typical store associate or a local contractor to build out these projects in such a way that it was fast and easy and intuitive. And so what we do as a company, we are a 3D content management system for the home category. And so I mentioned we're in kitchen, bath, decking, furniture, office, and storage, and they all have the same thing in common which is you got to take a bunch of individual SKUs, get them into a shared scene, make it an inspiring experience that people want to buy and help them check out. And so historically, if you were going to build one of these projects, you would go find a professional, you'd sit in a store, they'd have like a, you know, an old off white beige, you know, desktop monitor, and they'd be flipping through a catalog and you know, ticking away and you'd be sitting there for two hours sort of just wanting to, you know, pull your hair out. Right. And then you'd finally get something. It's not what you wanted. They'd have to do it again. Two weeks go by, three weeks go by, four weeks go by. It's just not a great experience. So what we've done is we've built a solution where we can allow you. So imagine that our experience is you scan your space with your cell phone, create a floor plan, select a photo of an inspirational kitchen that you like from a, a library that people think of like Pinterest kind of experience. And then our software automatically builds a kitchen in your space based on that design in that photo in about two seconds. And so then you can flip through design after design, after design, after design, you can go through, you know, 50 designs in a few minutes to find what you like. And it's all 
rules-based, data-driven, using AI. So it's like super simple to, to go through an experience. And as a homeowner, you know, you don't have to learn the catalog. You don't have to have to design. You can make some changes if you want to, and then you can submit that to a pro to get your, you know, your project finished. So we're all about basically automating big ticket, you know, purchases. Take us back to 2011 when you first founded the company. How did you discover this problem and what was it about this problem that made you and your brother say, yep, that's it, company number three, let's go build? So it actually generated, so we always, like whenever we we're going to do anything, we knew it was going to be a content management system, right? So we knew there was going to be like workflow and data, metadata and application setup, communications, integrations, analytics, white label applications, like any content management system, right? And so we're all, we've been always looking, you know, in our first business, the problem was, you know, efficient marketing. And so we were looking kind of actively like, what's the next medium that is going to need, you know, a content management system. And so my brother's background, he's a math computer science game guy, love 3D. And so he's like, I really think we should get into 3D. And I'm not that guy. My background's always been retail and data. And so I'm like, well, what's the application in retail? And so so the thesis was, man, if you could view a product in 3D, like how much better, this is 2011, right? So a augmented reality was not even a word yet. We actually wrote the very first AR app for the app store back then. And so our vision was, what if you could view a product in 3D? It'd be such a better customer experience. I don't have to depend on what images people share with me. I can look at it from any angle. I can share it. I can combine it with other things. I can change its color or finish. And so our thesis was, which still is, eventually 3D will eat the internet. Every single product on the internet will be in 3D because it's easier to maintain, it's transportable. And so whether it's, you know, dog toys or shoes or whatever, eventually every pro there will be no photos on product pages. It'll only be 3D experiences, especially as the cost of creating 3D gets less expensive. So that was the thesis. And then we started working backwards from that to go, okay, which categories are likely to make that move today? And we found it in 11 and we probably spent four years trying to find it. We did fashion and shoes and, you know, luxury items and cars and industrial equipment and healthcare equipment. And and then we we got finally got an opportunity with a decking company and did our first web-based 3D experience and it was like boom and it was this confluence of like okay once i create those 3d models that they're going to stay the shelf life is going to be a decent time right so i think kitchens decking it's like they don't change out that much maybe once every couple of years and then there's a configuration problem to solve and a visualization problem to solve and so that was like okay this is the place we want to play and then we said let's focus on the home and so we've kind of gradually moved into more and more categories in the home but our ambition is still to be the 3D content management system for all of e-com. But the product market fit for some of the other categories is like still not quite there yet. I mean, you really need to see a shoe in your hand before you buy it. Plus the cost of creating that content, the turnover of that content doesn't quite make the economics work, but eventually it will, right? When it's basically free to create 3D, but it's not there yet. So in the home right now, we'll expand beyond in time. In the early days when you started sharing that thesis, were there any people that just doubted that and said, you know, this isn't going to be relevant for the internet, you know, people aren't going to need this? Because like you said, that was still very early in, right? Like the the iPhone was released maybe a year before. So it was like very, very early on in this whole shift, I think, right? 
Yeah. So our fundraising, maybe pepper in a little bit of our fundraising approach. So we've always raised money from high net wealth, former founders and entrepreneurs. We've never really raised money from financial entities like a, a VC. I do have some folks in, but like they're folks that I know and also were former operators. And part of that was just because that's kind of the world I knew and the people I knew. And part of it was I just didn't really understand, you know, we weren't VC the guys, right? We were, I weren't, I wasn't in Silicon Valley, right? Where it was like very popular. And so it's funny when you get investment from those kinds of people, it's not to say that they don't care about like what you're going to do. They definitely are people who like bet on founders versus ideas. And, you know, and I think there's a, they're realistic about the fact that like we were wrong for five or six years about which category to go into before we found our hook. So, you know, I encourage a lot of people, like if you can do it, like find a family fund that is financed by a former entrepreneur who understands operations and is patient, especially unless you, unless your business model is like fully baked out and you're ready to go, like you're going to need somebody who's can mentor you and be patient. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Five years is a long time to really find that that product market fit and, and find that category that would work in. How did you stay so patient to see that through for five years? A lot of the founders I talk to, you know, the the time scale they're looking at, they're looking at like months, you know, maybe even quarters, but not five years until it really seems to to grab hold there. So what did you do to see that process through for such a long period of time? Yeah, I mean, it's not what you really like want, but I would argue that in most cases, that's what's real. You know, we tend to hear the quick hit stories and that's not like when you take a product to market, you're basically like my brother used to say, talks about like, you're making a proposition to the market. Right. And the real work is like listening for what comes back to you. And it takes time. People got to tell you their deep, dark problems. And, you know, usually they're, they're nuanced and hidden and you got to like suss all that out. Right. So you know, it probably took three or four years in our first company. So I, I just expected to some degree it wasn't going to be right away. We were very frugal with our cash. We, you know, didn't overhire before we felt like we had product market fit. Uh, we also started a whole nother company at the same time <laughs> that helped finance this company. There was a little bit more of a kind of consulting web mobile agency that was a little more like cash, like a cash business. Hmm. So yeah, I wish it had gone faster and we probably wouldn't have had to raise the money we have raised as much in any way, but I don't know, you better be, like to me, I just think that's the reality of the grind. You're going to have to, you know, to really create something, you're going to have to do that. If you get lucky, great, but I don't know very many guys that I know who've, you know, been lucky out of the box like that. What are some things that really come from Silicon Valley when it comes to company building that you just read in the news or see online that you you really strongly disagree with? You know, I know a lot of great venture capital, growth equity, private equity folks. Like the issue for me is, and I mean, I, this is kind of, people talk about this all the time, so it's not like a new topic, but you take investment and these things aren't always going to turn out, you know, a 10 times winner, right? Some are going to be three, four, five times, but unfortunately I think those companies end up getting shuttered before they can be, you know, meaningful businesses. 
I just think it's a, it has to be by definition based on their business model, kind of a winner take all strategy, which I get, but that's a really stressful way to run a business. If I were a founder of a completely venture backed company, you know, just feeling like it, you know, like the clock's ticking all the time, you know, just doesn't feel comfortable to me. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. What about your market category? Is it 3D product experience, 3D product visualization? What's that actual product category? Just got named, which is funny, that it's now called 3D commerce is our space. So buying things through a 3D enabled experience that just got coined a couple of years ago. Was that a gardener term? I don't know where it came from. I like it. It's kind of cool, like e-com, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, we just started the 3D commerce summit last year, February. So that's the first industry event for our space, you know? So it's pretty fun. Like, yeah, it's cool. It's like, we're right there, you know, where all the terms are starting to be created around this category, but it's still pretty new. And that conference, is that something that you organized and you put together? We did. We did. There were some events like there's the VR, ARA, uh, virtual reality, augments reality, but that was like, which is a great show, but it's too broad. And then they had some stuff at CES. They did some stuff at NRF and the retail show in New York. But there really wasn't like a, we started hearing from our retail partners, which are like, you know, Macy's and Lazy Boy, Bob's Furniture, Miller Knoll, that, you know, they started hiring people with roles that were like head of 3D and visualization. And there was no, even that title is just sort of becoming a thing now. But they're, you know, they would say, oh, I don't know anybody else who has my job. And I'm, and I go, oh, I actually can introduce you to somebody. So the idea was, you know, and some of these times these roles are in marketing and digital, and sometimes they're in IT. It's so it's really starting to, their formation is still happening. So we, we built it as a way to introduce people who had the same, you know, the one person in these companies who had the same job and turned out to be a great experience. So we're going to keep doing it. One of my favorite examples of category creation and, and category design is Gainsight. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but yeah, they created the customer success category. And what their founder says is that he observed in the market that there were more and more organizations where people had a job title that was customer success manager, but there was no purpose-built software. There was no community. There were no events. There was you know nothing for these folks. So that's what they set out to build. And they served this up and coming job title. So it sounds like you're in a very similar position where this job title and this whole profession almost didn't even exist until a couple of years ago. And now you can position yourself as that go-to platform for this profession. Is that right? Yeah. And, that, and very much like that customer success, we have a, had a customer success on our team, but it's very much a cross-functional role, right? Where almost like a product manager in the sense that you're touching lots of different parts of the organization trying to help them have like a, a very customer-centric health, we call it the, like the health report view. If you're the CEO of, you know, our client, well, how would you talk about us, right? That has to be the brain of the success manager. And these 3D commerce roles have a kind of similar because they work with merchandising, marketing, digital stores. They have this function that's kind of floating around the company, IT, and so they have to be, have that same kind of product management, you know, influence a lot of different functions. When it comes to that conference, two questions that one, were competitors invited there? No, it's funny. We just had that conversation. We don't have, there's not a ton of people in this space. We compete against traditional desktop software in many cases, you know, like a CAD software, right? Mm -hmm. And 
you know, we'd invite those people, but they wouldn't understand what we're talking about. I'm just kidding. That's just a little bit. There are some earlier stage companies that are coming out that I've, I've been pretty impressed by. So we, we're thinking about that. Does that make sense to start being a little bit more generous? So we'll see what we do there. Yeah. The reason I asked that, see, I have another podcast called Behind the Category. That's all about category creation. And uh, we had one founder on there from Terminus and they created the account-based marketing category. And that was a big part of their strategy was they did conferences, they did events, and they were bringing their competitors and they invited competitors to participate. And I did another interview with the CEO and founder of G2, just talking about how categories are created. And I asked him for his number one piece of advice. And that was his number one piece of advice was go partner with your competitors, do events together, and then use that to you know, drive categories forward. So I was curious where you felt that because I've heard from other founders where they, they don't want to be anywhere close to their, their competitors. Yeah, it, actually, and there's this guy, Josh Linkner, he's a New York Times bestseller. He, um, he started uh, ePrize. That's a big like promotion management company, like uh, interactive promotions online. He did the same thing. He started it and then invited the competition and, you know, tried to help build the industry. It's a pretty large perspective on building a space. Pretty cool. Yeah. It's one of those things that sounds nice on paper and it makes sense on paper, but I'm sure when you're sitting there you know, getting ready to send that email to a, a competitor, I guess it depends too, you know, how competitive it is. If you're in like a life and death fight against them, then it's, it's probably a bit harder, but either yeah, way, right now we got two or three competitors. We're probably still kind of all trying to eat each other's lunch. So <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Second question there was, um, you don't have to give me exact numbers, but like roughly what was like the cost to put on an event like that? And, and how did you measure ROI? I talk with a lot of founders who want to do events, but they get scared from the cost and they get scared from measuring ROI. So how did you approach that? The first thing we did is we faked it, which was, which I think is a great strategy for all entrepreneurs, which is that whenever you're trying to test the market for something, just fake it and see how much interest there is, right? Like don't build the product, build a video of the product, right? You know, so the, the first thing we did is we dropped a website and said, we're running this event and, and said it was invitation only, you know, kind of like you had to sign up. And then we just were trying to see how many people showed genuine interest and then use that. And we are like, okay, well, that's enough to know that we could probably invest. And then we said, okay, if we get a deal out of this, it'll pay for the event. Right. And that's enough to make the justification and, and then you know, try to be break even on your first one and then get some confidence and go to the next one. But that's how we did it. When it comes to growth, are there any numbers and metrics that you can share? Yeah, we're doing. So first of all, the most important metric I care about is retention, which I'm sure every other B2B SaaS guy is nodding their head thinking, yeah, of course. And the worst thing you can do is take a client, you know, the, where the value proposition is a very strong and you're constantly trying to fill the holes, right? To keep it, it's just, it's energy sapping, right? And sometimes if it's not a good fit, you got to move on. So we spend a lot of time up front with our customer success team, you know, with our delivery team, with our head of strategy, making sure it's a good value proposition. You know, they have the ability to pay. They're at a scale that's going to work for them. And of course that drives retention. So that's what I care about the most. So we've, we've got, you know, you know, our net retention is 110 or something like that. I mean, we've got really good retention then. And it's somewhat the nature of the model too. Like imagine I onboarded your entire kitchen catalog, like all the business rules and integrations. It's kind of a hybrid between like a enterprise software and a SaaS. It's like the first four months are integrations and content, but that buys you a lot of stickiness. 
And so we break even in the first four months, but then it's, you know, highly profitable and, and high retention after. Yeah, but we've, we've been growing historical growth rate 25% for the last five, six years. That was just about the right pace. Don't want to, you know, we're not a hockey stick business, right? We're kind of keep building the foundation business. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised over 44 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? I think the you know, first thing you have to have a lot of respect for the money you're raising, right? I mean, this is people's hard-earned money and you got to understand that you've got a real obligation and you got to treat it like that. At the same time, I think that like, like I mentioned, working with the family, you know, former entrepreneurs, like I think they have that same perspective and then it's not always going to be perfect. I think, um, I don't know, but you've heard that term like radical transparency. We talk a lot on our team, like if all I hear from good news from you, I can't believe anything you say, like you've got to be balanced and you got to do the same thing with your investors. Like the moment I have bad news, I just, you know, my brother and I call each other up, like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the answer is always the same thing, which is be fast and transparent. And the nice thing too, is if you, you work with people on your board that you show that kind of respect for, they get it. It's not always easy conversations, but you know, they understand you're going to have wins and you're going to have losses and challenges. And, you know, so to me, of course, we care about the money. We need the money to grow and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, the person or people that come along with it are so freaking important. Like they've got to be in your corner. They can't be infighting. They've got to challenge you. I've got this one guy, Ed Wodeshek, who's on our board. And he's like the person in my life I can't possibly lie to. Like I try sometimes, you know, I try to like, paint the picture and he's that guy you're full of shit and i don't see it that way and you're like god damn it you're right it's probably not that way and it's like you need somebody in your circle that is kind of like the bullshit caller because you because you always do want to you know entrepreneurs are optimistic and you know want to believe everything but so you just got to be you know you're not fooling anybody right that's what i'd say like you're not going to raise money and be more clever than you know people who made billions of dollars like it's not going to happen so be transparent, ask for help, be humble. And you got to have a, a really respectful mindset around it because they can, you know, those guys will smell if you're not doing the right things or you're hiding information. Let's imagine that you were starting the company again today from scratch based on everything learned so far. What would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself? I love the space we're in. I'm so, I think it's a great space. The best thing to happen in our space, there's a lot of investment in 3D. And then when AI came out, everybody shifted focus to that, which is great. And because it kind of left my space alone, we haven't seen very much money going into our space lately. So that helps us, right? You know, I wish we'd gotten to kind of where we were going to focus faster and didn't have to spend as much money to get there. But I don't know how I would have changed that, right? Sometimes it's just happenstance and circumstance and timing. So it took a while for things to mature. Like you should have seen me like trying to like tell people what AR was. <laughs> like we called it holograms, product holograms. They're like, what? And it's like, people didn't know how to use it. Like it was clunky and it was slow. Like we were early, that is for sure. Final question now, since we're almost up on time, let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building here? So our current decision that we have to make is, you know, do we want to stay focused vertically in the home category and kind of move out in concentric circles, you know, go to like maybe real estate or new home builders, or do we want to go sideways and start looking at other categories? And so there are pros and cons to each, you know, if the market goes horizontal and 3D catches in other categories, like that's a big TAM, like almost a measurable TAM, right? 
if if it goes to all categories. But, you know, there's a huge risk variable there, right? Where the home stuff is probably not as big a TAM, but much less risk. And so that's the thing we talk about a lot, which is, you know, are we going to go deep or are we going to go wide and and what data is telling us what we should do? Amazing. Beck, this has been a lot of fun, but we'll, we'll have to wrap here. Before we do wrap, if there's any founders that are listening in and just want to follow along from a company building perspective, where should they go? Well, so there's not self-promotion, honest comment though. I wrote a book recently, it's got published, uh, it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble called Your Good Work Habits Toolbox. And I basically documented the last 10 years of the business and my entire philosophy around team building and culture and dealing with challenging problems, communications, personal organization. And it was really kind of written as a, just a, I've got twin 18 year old boys that are now in college. They want to be entrepreneurs. So I kind of wrote it as kind of a passing on, you know, what my dad did to me. And so, yeah, if you want to follow my story, it's, it's all in there and, and hopefully it's interesting to you. Amazing. We'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. Beck, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Brett. Appreciate it. Take care. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.